Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Good morning. Uh, it is my honor and privilege to introduce our guest speaker this morning, Dr. Gary Johnson, joining us from Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, Gary is here because he has been um, partnering with Crossroads Church Partners in the Flourish Conference, which is a conference for church leaders. I believe you had uh, Flourish Wisconsin uh, yesterday, and you have Flourish Minnesota coming up this coming weekend. And I want to encourage you to speak with Curtis about that a little bit. Uh, if you have any interest or want to know more, please visit with him. But I first met Gary, I think, about 14 or 15 years ago now, and uh, I was a young professor at Lincoln Christian Seminary and had wandered across the pond to teach at House Edelweiss for a ministry called TCM at a time when I had no idea I would later end up teaching there full time. And lo and behold, Gary and his wife Leah were there, and Gary was an adjunct professor teaching in leadership ministries, pastoral ministries for us. And his uh, very humble and gracious wife, Leah, was serving as a short-term worker, working in the kitchen, you know, making beds, doing whatever was needed, and just really enjoyed our time together and got to know them. And then a few years ago, Gary founded, uh, after he was after retired, I believe, or just before, from the Indian Creek Christian Church, founded the E2 Elder Ministry, and uh, invited me to join them at one of those conferences at their church in Indianapolis at the Creek and can testify firsthand to the wisdom that he brings when it comes to training church leaders and to declaring the word. And I just feel uh, really blessed that he is here to join us in Minnesota this weekend. Now, more importantly, Gary, one of the things that I absolutely love knowing about you is that we share a history that maybe you don't always think about but I do, and that is that when Gary was a seminary student at Lincoln Christian Seminary, he would often find himself sitting around the table of my grandparents, Roy and Mary Martin, in Waynesville, Illinois, uh, enjoying fellowship with them. And long before I ever knew Gary, I was a seminary student at Lincoln Christian Seminary, being invited by Roy and Mary Martin to sit around their table into fellowship to encourage me and strengthen me, but I also think they were keeping an eye on me because I was marrying their granddaughter. But uh, we just thank you for your service to the kingdom and uh, your friendship to our family these many long years. We want to invite you to come, and I'll pray over you, and then uh, Gary will share the word with us. Lord God, uh, what a joy and a privilege it is to be here this morning in the presence of one of your servants Father, we're so grateful for the way you have gifted Gary, the way you have called him to serve you, for the many opportunities, Lord, that you have placed before his path these many years, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Father, you have uniquely gifted him, you have protected him and called him to help strengthen and encourage our churches, Father, to speak in a special way to the elders and men and women who guide and direct the congregations not only here in the U.S., but, but around the globe. Today, Father, we ask that your Spirit 
would speak through him, that your word would be declared. And Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to humbly and readily receive and accept your word and respond. Father, it is together as your body that your spirit works and moves and breathes in us. And we pray that he is here among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning, church. It's a privilege uh, to be with you today. And uh, Dr. Fred, I'm going to connect just a couple more dots. So when, when Fred makes mention of E2 Effective Elders and when it started, uh, I happened to be teaching at House Edelweiss. It was June of 08, and Dr. Estep, Jim Estep, and Dr. David Rokup, they are friends and also adjuncts to TCM. We were taking a coffee break on the patio and it was in that moment that we just started talking about as pastors, we have books we can read, conferences we can attend, degrees that we can attain. But when it came to elders, there was nigh on to nothing available to help elders, to encourage them and equip them. And it was on the patio at House Edelweiss that, that E2 was, was birthed. And by God's grace now, we have met with over 9,500 elders across the country and around the world to equip them to become uh, all the more effective, bold, courageous men of God to lead the church uh, uh, with uh, God's direction and power. Uh, also, one other little dot to connect. Uh, Dennis is, is not aware of this, but Roy and Mary Martin were dear friends of ours when I was preaching in that little country church in Waynesville, Illinois. There were 30 people in the church, and they were voting to close the church. And Lee and I, we went there, we stayed for 10 years about. And during that time, Roy and Mary became friends, and they invited this young preacher and his wife and his two little boys to their home in Florida for a week of vacation. And down we went, and they drove us to the, the beach. And while we were there, our little guy, Aaron, he ran out into the surf. And he got away, and Roy knew immediately that he was getting into one of those tidal pools. And Roy went running into the water, uh, waist deep, and he rescued our son. And our son is alive today because of Roy Martin. And our son is a police officer in New Orleans, a graduate of Lincoln, but also the first full-time Christian chaplain on that police force. He carries a Glock, he wears a cross, and he says, repent. And, <clears throat> and uh, he wouldn't be there if, if Roy Martin had not saved our son's life. So I just want to introduce myself. We, we got a few things that connect the dots. By the way, I was born in Muskegon, Michigan. Okay, right here, Muskegon, Michigan, right on Lake Michigan. And uh, I'm the only one who moved away. My brothers, their uh, families are still there. So I'm up north right now. Have you heard that phrase, up north? I'm, I'm at home. My grandpa on my dad's side came from Stockholm, Sweden. He emigrated to the United States when he was 26 years of age. Uh, he uh, uh, never went home to see his family. So my dad is John Johnson, and the Swedes in Muskegon called him Janne Jansson. And uh, I am Swedish through and through, and so we've got a lot that connects us. I've got this Swedish work ethic as well. But 
We're going to get in the Word of God today, and I'm quite excited. I'm thankful to Monty for the invitation to come and bring the Scriptures uh, today. And what I'd like for us to do is to think back to a time when we had these. And I'm hoping, there we go, young people, that is called a camera. You did not talk to your friends on that device. This is back in the day when you put something in the back of it called film, and you had something on the top called a flash cube, and you took a picture, and it would turn. Anybody remember those devices? And the film that we put in the back of that camera was uh, made by a company named... Kodak, exactly correct. And when you got the family together or you saw an incredible sight, it was worth a picture, and we called that a Kodak moment. That's right, we're tracking a Kodak moment. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to get in the Word of God today, and we're going to look at what I think of as Kodak moments, moments in Scripture that were worth a picture, and it's all going to speak to our lives in a significant way. Now, we're going to go to this first one. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, please, over to Acts chapter 2. This is a very powerful statement about the early church there in Jerusalem. This is before the great persecution in Acts 7 and 8. So there's only one church. It's there in Jerusalem. It's called uh, First Christian Church Jerusalem. It's a mega church. In chapter 4, we read that it numbered 5,000 men, plus then you had women and children. Probably 15,000, 20,000 people were members at First Christian Church Jerusalem. And this is what it says of that church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts They broke bread in their homes. Let me advance. Here we go. There we go. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, there are four things that stand out very powerfully in this Kodak moment, these four practices. They devoted themselves to the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, a word meaning that they were doing life with one another. Uh, There are over 50 one another commands, over 50 of them in the New Testament, and that's how they were doing life, with one another. They were breaking bread. They were remembering the Lord's death until He comes again, breaking bread, and to prayer. Now, what you and I want to understand is they devoted themselves And the fact that they devoted themselves, these four practices were of prime importance to them. And they, if we cut their hands, they would bleed. They were no different than us. We also are capable of the same what? Devotion. We're capable of the same devotion. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to land on just one of those four practices of the church. We're going to talk about prayer today. And I want to approach it this way. Think with me, anorexia. Anorexia is a disease in which we think we are grossly overweight when in reality we eat very little or not at all. It's when an individual thinks he or she is grossly overweight 
when in reality, that individual eats very little or not at all. Now, there are three things that stand out about anorexia nervosa. First of all, it's serious, so serious that it can what? It can kill, absolutely. People can die of complications of, of anorexia. Those of us in the room who are a little bit older, now just to connect the dots here, Leah and I have been married 44 years. We are now in Club Med. That would be Medicare, by the way. We got our Medicare cards. We're in Club Med. Now, back in the day, we who are in Club Med and older, there was a vocalist who died of complications of anorexia. Anybody remember her name? Exactly, Karen Carpenter. Now, that was music. We've only just begun, etc. Okay, all those top ten tunes of Karen Carpenter and her brother. She died of complications of anorexia. It's very serious. Here, here's a second of three uh, traits of this disease. It's impartial. Anybody can contract anorexia, thinking that we're grossly overweight when in reality we eat very little. It's not just for teen girls, girls as well as boys, men as well as women, young as well as old, rich as well as poor, educated as well as not educated. This is an impartial disease thinking we're grossly overweight when in reality we eat very little at all. But now, here's the good news. It's completely what? Anybody completely curable, completely curable, with great effort over an extended period of time, somebody can be completely cured of this anorexia nervosa. Now, we're not going to begin eating a 28-ounce porterhouse steak with a loaded baked potato for our first meal, but with great effort over an extended period of time, somebody can be completely cured of this. Now, you might be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with the early church there in the book of Acts? What on earth? Well, everything. Think of it with me this way. I believe that there is an anorexia of prayer. And it's when we think we've got a great prayer life, when in reality we pray very little or not at all. We think we've got a great prayer life, when in reality we pray very little or not at all. And there are three things that stand out about this illness, this spiritual illness. Number one, it's serious. Number two, it is impartial. And number three, it is curable. And we're going to unpack each of those uh, in these, these few moments. But what is so important right now, if you and I are a follower of Jesus, if we wear the name Christian, Acts 11, verse 26, they were first called Christians where? At Antioch. So the name Christian became formal for those who were followers of Christ. I-A-N, that suffix means follower of Christ. If you and I wear that name, Christian, we're followers of Christ, Prayer had better be pretty important to us. It was important to Jesus. Mark 1, verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, He left the house, and He went off to a solitary place where He prayed. So what I'm hoping is that the Holy Spirit got in us, got in us, repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy who? The Holy Spirit. 
God is in us. That's what makes worship good. It's not the songs we sing. It's not the sermon we hear. It is our encounter with God, the Holy Spirit. This afternoon, I'll be calling in, checking in with Leah and my family. They're having family dinner after church at Grandma and Grandpa's house, and a common question over that, that lunch table is, when did you experience God connecting with you in worship? When did you experience the Holy Spirit stirring in your mind, heart, and soul? That is what makes worship worship, encountering the living God. So that's my prayer as we go now into the, the, deeper into the Word, all of us will have a holy encounter, conversation with God in our skin, the Holy Spirit. Here we go. So let's talk about this first trait of it being serious. Anorexia of prayer is serious. How do, how do we know? Because listen to this. In the Old Testament, here's a Kodak moment. There was a guy by the name of Samuel. He was a prophet. And Israel demanded a king, so he turned in his letter of resignation, and he had a goodbye speech. And in that goodbye speech, Samuel the prophet said this, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. This is a line from his farewell speech, and he said, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by what? Failing to pray for you. So there's Samuel, this incredible leader of God. He said, it is a sin when we fail to pray. When we fail to pray. You know, we, we don't think that way logically. We, you know, I'm from Indianapolis, and uh, one of our uh, uh, claims to fame is a guy by the name of David Letterman. I don't know if you ever watched a David Letterman show, but he made famous something called his Top Ten List. Well, move over, Dave Letterman. There's one that's much more famous and original, and that would be God's top ten list. And in that top ten list, don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, etc. And we look at that top ten list, and we go, now, those are sins. Very rarely do we think of this as a, as a sin before God, that failing to pray for someone is a sin. When, and I'll just keep stretching that. When I fail to pray for my wife, when you fail to pray for your spouse, children, grandchildren, friends, people going through difficulty, the church, and not only the local church, but the capital C church, our nation, our president, our Congress, our government, our local state governments, when we fail to pray, we are sinning. Now, let's develop that just a little bit. That's what makes us serious. In Mark chapter 9, another Kodak moment, Jesus is mountain climbing with his inner circle, James, Peter, and John. They're going to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down from the mountain, and there are the other nine disciples. A dad brought his boy who had a demonic spirit, and they tried to heal him, but they couldn't. And then Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? You bring the boy to me. Jesus heals the boy, and then, are you ready for this? They go inside Mark chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, and this is what happens. The disciples, they asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, this kind can come out only by prayer. This demonic spirit can only come out by prayer. Why couldn't we drive it out? See, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they're, they're behind closed doors, the windows are shuttered. 
And when he says this kind can come out only by prayer, here it is, connect the dots. Jesus told them they failed in ministry because they failed to pray. You know that 12 churches a day now are closing in America? 12 a day. There are more churches closing than are being planted in America. You know that 85% of the 350,000 churches in America are on the wrong side of the bell curve. They're not growing. They're not even plateaued. They are hoping to maintain attendance, maintain interest, maintain budget, but many of them are on life support, and every day in America, 12 more churches close. And I wonder if it's because they are failing to pray. How many divorces could have been saved? How many marriages? Divorces prevented if a husband took his wife in his arms and prayed over his marriage. How many families could have been spared the wound of divorce had there been a praying husband and wife, a mom and dad? You know, um, this bridge... Uh, was was in a place called Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's over the Ohio River. It was called the Silver Bridge. On December the 15th of 1967, 10 days before Christmas, that bridge was covered with traffic bumper to bumper. People were going downtown to Point Pleasant to do Christmas shopping. People were leaving downtown Point Pleasant the day their workday had been done. They were leaving town bumper to bumper, 5 p.m., December the 15th, 1967, when eyewitnesses say there was a sound like that of a, a sonic boom, and that bridge within seconds was in the Ohio River. And 46 people perished. The Army Corps of Engineers came in, and they dredged the river one mile up, one mile down. They took the wreckage out, and they discovered the cause of that great catastrophe. It was because one piece of metal was not in place. There was one 18-inch long piece of metal that had sheared off, and when that piece of metal was not in place, it added pressure to two outer points. They collapsed, adding pressure to two outer points. They collapsed, and like a snowball going down a hill, the wreckage just almost instantaneously took place, and that bridge lay in the water, and 46 people lay dead, all because of one piece of metal not in place. Would you please listen to my heart? When prayer is not in its rightful place, collapse happens. The collapse of ministry, the collapse of marriage, the collapse of family, the collapse of health, the collapse of finances, the collapse of the, the next and future generation. When we are not powerful, prevailing people in prayer. This is serious, thinking we got a great prayer life, when in reality we pray very little or not at all. Oh, God is great, God is good, let's thank for our food. Amen. I prayed today. Oh, God, bless the missionaries. Amen. I prayed today. Really? Well, God would then say, how do you want those missionaries blessed? Are they struggling on the field? How, how do you want them blessed? So, number one, it's serious. Now, number two, anorexia of prayer, it's impartial. Now, turn with me a little bit further in the book of Acts. We're going to look at the church in Ephesus, all right? 
In the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, and he arrived at Ephesus. Now, in chapter 19, Paul the Apostle is going to birth a church. He's going to plant a church in Ephesus, and this church is going to grow by leaps and by bounds by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and they're going to become what many New Testament scholars believe, second in size only to the the primary church in Jerusalem. It was a prevailing, powerful church. Notice in verse 11 of chapter 19, it says there that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And notice down in verse 17 uh, that the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. A church was planted when Paul was there. Incredible. And he had his single longest located ministry at First Christian Church, Ephesus. Stayed there three years. Now, Go with me, if you would please, over to 1 Timothy. After his long ministry there of three years, before he went back to the mission trail, notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1, right after the introduction, the the address label appears. Notice in verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. Macedonia is a region, not a city. When I went into the region of Macedonia, he's on a mission trail, so to speak. Stay there in Ephesus. I told you, young Timothy, you stay there in Ephesus. Why would he have to tell him to stay someplace? Just real simple. Whenever an angel appeared, what did the angel always say to the people? Fear not. That's right. Fear not. Here's an angel. Why did the angel have to always say fear not? Because the people what? They were afraid. Now, if, if you ladies are buying Christmas cards from Hallmark with, with an angel on the cover of the card that is a blonde bombshell, stop it. That is not an angel, all right? I'm here to tell you that if she showed up at that campfire when the angels were out there keeping watch over their flocks at night, uh, the angel there says, fear not. If it had a, been a blonde bombshell like on Hallmark Christmas cards, they would have said, hey, baby, come on over. We'll keep you warm by the fire. Listen, there was a reason why the angel always said, fear not. And there's a reason why Paul says, you stay there. It's because he wanted to leave. First thing after the address label, Timothy, you stay put. You see, young Timothy was his successor. In Ephesus, and Ephesus was a mess. There's not enough time to talk about that in the sermon, why it was a mess. But now just look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I urge then, first of all, see, in other words, here's the to-do list, and at the top of the to-do list, I urge you, first of all, uh, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Paul uses not one, but four words that all mean the same thing. It's kind of like when when our boys were growing up, uh, Leah would say, now you boys get in there, you sweep, you vacuum, you scrub, you dust your room. In other words, you clean it. All right? Here Paul is saying, requests, prayers, thanksgiving, intercession. He's saying, I want you, first of all, the first importance, you pray, pray, then you pray, and you pray some more, because why? That church is in a mess. You pray, 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 pray. And that was shortly after Paul left. But it doesn't stop there. 
Now go with me to the very last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and check out the very first postcard that Jesus sent to one of seven churches. We call these the seven letters. They're pretty short. They would fit on a postcard. And the first one goes, verse 1, chapter 2, to the church in Ephesus. 2, to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. And if you'll notice, uh, there are first of, of all, there are words of commendation commendation. And then very quickly, Jesus moves to words of condemnation. And he says in verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Right there in Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. So now think with me. Here's this great mega mighty church in Ephesus And very quickly, now Paul, uh, Jesus is writing this postcard, this letter, about 30 years, 35 years after Paul has died. So Paul plants the church. He then goes back to the mission field. Timothy takes over in the church. Things are already going downhill. And then all of a sudden, about 30, 35 years after the death of Paul, bam, they get a letter from Jesus saying, you have got to repent because you have forsaken me, your first love. And here's my point. Anorexia of prayer, thinking we got a great prayer life, when in reality we pray very little or not at all. It's impartial. That church lost their first love. I doubt very much that they were praying because Paul had to tell them, you pray, 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 and then you better pray some more. And it was at the top of the to-do list. You and I got to understand whether we are a follower of Jesus of decades or a brand new believer, this disease is impartial. Whether we are a church that's been around for a hundred plus years, or we've been around just for ten years, this disease is impartial. When I handed the baton off at the creek three years ago to drive the Jesus bus of E2 full time, the creek was between four and five thousand in size. And that church can easily slip into anorexia of prayer and become incredibly dysfunctional spiritually. Why? Because this disease is impartial. Ephesus had no room for Jesus, no desire of Jesus. And remember, a church is not a building. It's not a time of service. The church is people. We're the church. We're the called out ones, called out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know, imagine if I had a a giant metal crate up here, and we put uh, all kinds of basketballs in. I'm a Hoosier from uh, Indianapolis, so here we, and we play basketball, Uh, we can see the top of the basketballs. Uh, Question, yes or no, is that crate full? Yes or no? No, not at all. Because now we can take golf balls, and we can pour those golf balls in. And they go sliding, slipping down to the bottom, and they fill all the cracks and crevices between the basketballs. Question, is it now full, yes or no? No, because now we could take a shot, like we, we would shoot a deer with, buckshot, and we can put in millions upon millions of little steel balls, and they, they filter down. We can hear them, and they're now filling all those cracks and crevices between the golf balls and the basketballs. Now is it full, yes or no? 
No, it is not. That's right. Because now we can put in beach sand. We can go down to Lake Michigan or wherever, and we can put in all kinds of beach sand, and it filters in, and it's even spilling over the, the side of the crate. Is it full? Yes or no? No, it's not. That's exactly right. You are a scholar. You get free cake on your way out. And uh, what we can do, we can put a, a mesh over the top of it. We can put in a garden hose, turn on the water, and we can displace even the air. Now it is full. Yes, Be because now there is no air in it. The water has displaced the air. Now, the, the reason for that, that's us. We keep living life at such a frenetic pace places to go, people to see, things to do, that we push any sense of spiritual air with Jesus out of our lives. This disease is deadly, spiritually deadly. And the evil one, he just comes so subtly and he pushes Jesus further and further and further from our lives so that he becomes a second thought and not king of kings. Is there a witness in the house? Okay. All right, here's the good news, though. This disease of prayer, thinking we got a great prayer life when in reality we pray very little or not at all, it's completely what? Curable. Completely curable. With great effort, over an extended period of time, we can cure this disease. Now, think with me. Two more Kodak moments in Scripture. In John chapter 9, you can check it out, this is where Jesus encounters a man who had been born blind. A man who had been born blind. And Jesus, the story says, he spat on the ground, he made some mud, he took that mud and he put it where? In the man's eyes. And he said to the guy, go and wash. And so the guy goes to the pool of Siloam, and he washes the mud out of his eyes, and he went back seeing. It says, and he returned seeing. Now, here's a question, not a trick question. Could Jesus have healed that man on the spot? Sure he could, absolutely. He could have snapped his fingers, said shazam, thought the thought, and bam, that man would have been healed. But he required him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That stands out to me in that Kodak moment. Here's another Kodak moment. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus encounters not one, but ten guys with what disease? Anybody? Leprosy. That's exactly correct. Ten lepers. And he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. And it says, as they went, they were healed. Another question. Could Jesus have healed them on the spot? Yeah, yes, absolutely. He could have uh, thought the thought, snapped his finger, said shazam, bam, they would have been healed. But isn't it interesting, he required them to make an effort to receive the blessing of their healing. Now, here's, here's just a very important rule of studying the Bible. And that is, when you and I see something repeated, it's important. And it's not just the text, the words. No, if there's an action that is repeated, it is important. God wants it to capture our attention. In both of those Kodak moments, Jesus required those individuals to make an effort in order to receive the blessing of that healing. We are living in a culture today that wants something for nothing. 
and it is a cancer that has metastasized all throughout our culture. Wanting something for nothing. It is in the mind, the thinking of so many people. And so it even translates here, oh, I want a, a, a powerful knowledge of the Word of God. Oh, yes, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my uh, Bible in my pillowcase tonight, and I'm going to sleep, and I'm going to just soak it all up. That's what I'm going to do. No, it doesn't happen that way. Just talk to Dr. Fred. You go to school for years and years and years and years, and you still don't know much because we cannot plumb to the bottom of this book. This book is phenomenal. It is indescribable. We have to make an effort if we want to have a, a strong understanding of this book. We've got to open it, got to study it, got to read it, got to want it, the bread of life, got to want this diet. Similarly, if we want a powerful prayer life, what do we have to do, people? We've got to pray. This isn't rocket science, easy answer. We got to make an effort if we want a powerful prayer life. You know, if we take out our phones and we dial 911, we're going to connect immediately to uh, first responders. I'm confident here in your area, especially it's so developed, that uh, you have uh, instantaneous uh, connection. Uh, larger cities have uh, computer systems that if somebody's calling in and they are unable to speak, for whatever reason, the computers are already identifying the location of that call, the name associated with that number, the address. That's the way it works. But that person has to at least what? Dial. That's right. Call. And it's, and it's the same with God. You and I have to understand that God already knows you and me by name. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows where you and I live. He knows what you and I are going through every moment of every day and night. He already knows all of that. But what does He want us to do? He wants us to what? To call Him, turn to Him. Jeremiah 33.3, easy address, 333, Jeremiah. God says, call to me and I will answer you. I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Call to me and I will. Not maybe, not perhaps, no, I will answer you. I'm not going to put you through to my voicemail. I'm going to pick up the call. You call to me and I will answer you. I'm going to show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. How, how often do we take up God on that? You see, he wants us. Psalm 91, verse 14 and following. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him because he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. You and I have got to call on the name of the Lord. That's how this, this anemic disease in our lives is cured. You know, um, the enemy is real. I'm not talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Ukrainians woke up to another day of war. You and I wake up every day and we are at war. Now you listen to my heart on this. I don't think of demons hiding behind every tree, but I am not naive to the reality that we are at war. And Paul the Apostle said to the church in Ephesus, the longest single passage on spiritual warfare, verse 10 through verse 18. You and I need to read it and read it often. We need to memorize it, hide it in our hearts. In verse 12 he says, our struggle is not with flesh and blood. 
Our struggle is not with the in-laws or the outlaws. Our struggle is not with nasty Nora at work or cranky Craig at school. Our struggle is not with people. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the authorities, the rulers, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in this heavenly realm, where the heavens pour down rain, as it says in the Psalms, in this realm there is evil. You and I cannot see it, but it's there. And Jesus says that the thief, the enemy, has come to kill, steal, and destroy. As a matter of fact, Peter said it very plainly in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If something's devour, it no longer exists. And when you and I are trapped by a sin, Hebrews 12, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. When we play with darkness, and all of us have a sin that easily entangles, you listen to my heart, when we are ensnared by whatever that is, we are easy pickings. When we are in a snare, that lion can come and devour us so very easily. We're at war. Revelation 12. You and I need to understand that in verse 12 of that 12th chapter, we read that the devil has gone down to the earth. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. His days are numbered. That passage describes the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That passage talks about Jesus. Uh, now have come salvation. When did salvation come? At the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Satan could do nothing more to thwart the mission of Jesus. So now his days are numbered, and he's going to do all that he can to wreak havoc with anybody uh, in terms of seeking out God. He's filled with fury. He is an enemy uh, to be aware of and to resist and to fight. And what is our principal weapon? Prayer. There are laser-guided missiles in this war going on in Ukraine. And uh, a, mi a missile that is laser-guided, so a soldier goes in behind enemy uh, lines, he points his laser uh, device, gun, revolver, whatever, at the target. He radios to a jet above and he says, target is painted, and that pilot jettisons that missile, and it's a dead hit. You and I can pray in the all-powerful, never-changing, blood-soaked name of Jesus. And we can target every effort of the evil one on every marriage that's failing, on every life that is addicted to a drink of choice, a drug of choice, to pornography, to whatever. We can come against it if we will pray and be cured of this disease that is out of the pit of hell where a believer thinks he or she's got a great prayer life when in reality they pray very little or not at all. So let me just close with this list for you. If you want a more active prayer life, ready? I learned this from a missionary who came back from Africa. And that missionary said to have a more active prayer life, A, adore, during the course of the day, praise God for who He is. 
just while we're driving the car, while we're mowing the lawn, whatever we're doing, just take a moment to adore God, praise Him, uh, make sure that we confess our sin. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And we have to make sure that we take time to thank Him during the course of the day. Man, thank you. While I was driving here from the hotel, I was noticing the greening of the grass. We're mowing the grass in Indianapolis. But I was thanking God. And why is the grass greening? Why are the trees budding? Because God is changing the season. And how does God change the season? By tilting the earth. That's how. And I was just thanking God while driving here. God, thank you that you are all powerful. You're tilting your earth again by the order of your command. There's so much for which to give thanks. I opened my eyes today on Eastern Standard Time at 4 a.m., your time. And I said, thank you, Jesus. I've got another day to live. See, we, prayer is a conversation. A conversation. Intercede for other people. V, vanquish. Pray against the kingdom of darkness. Pray against the enemy. And make sure that we are asking extreme things of God. Because our God can do anything. Our God can do the immeasurably more than all we ask or even think. Stop the Mickey Mouse prayers. Please, please, hear my heart on this. Stop asking God to be with us. Do we need to ask God to be with us? No. Why? Because He's promised what? He's promised never to leave us. So, oh God, be with me today. Child, I told you I'm never leaving you. I am God in your skin, the Holy Spirit. Stop asking me to do something that I've already promised in my good book. I'm not ever going to do it. I'm never going to leave you. See, many times we ask God to show up. There's no need to ask God to show up. He's already here. What we need to pray is, God, would you show off in such a way as that I can see you and I can hear you? Show off, God. Ask God to do the extreme things, vanquishing the evil one as we intercede for one another and for people that we do not even know, while giving thanks and adoring God for who He is, what He's done, and always saying, wash me up, please, again today, in the priceless blood of your Son, my Savior. You know, um, these two guys, Henry Ford, Charlie Steinmetz, the, uh, the great entrepreneur, Henry Ford, he designed and built this thing called an automotive plant in Dearborn, Michigan. He had thought of something called an assembly line on which to build his Model T. Well, he got it going, and he said, you know, we're going to have to have a whole lot of electricity. And so he hired a guy named Charlie Steinmetz an electrical engineer, a brilliant inventor, uh, to come and design the first generators of the Ford Motor Plant. And uh, the plant was up and running. The cars were being produced. Henry was making money hand over fist, and he was happy. That is, until one day when the plant went dark. For whatever reason, the generators failed, and the, the assembly line came to a screeching halt. The maintenance workers, they tried, and they tried everything to get the line going again, and they couldn't. So Henry, he said, you better get Charlie over here. So here came Charlie, and Charlie tinkered around for a few hours. He threw the lever, and the plant roared to life. The line began moving, and Henry was happy because Henry was making money. 
He was happy, that is, until he got the bill. So Henry opened the bill from Charlie, and it was for $10,000. Now, that's a princely sum of money in the early 1900s. If we do the adjustment for today's dollars, that's about a quarter of a million dollars. Kind of took Henry by surprise, choked a little bit there, and he took a pen and he wrote on there, Charlie, isn't this a bit much for a few hours of tinkering around? Question mark. H. Ford handed it to the courier. The courier took the bill over to Charlie. Charlie opened the bill, saw Henry's note, and go, oh, he wants a new bill. Okay. So he wrote a new bill, handed it to the courier. Courier took it over to Henry. Henry opened the bill. Oh, now this is more like it. For a few hours of tinkering around, $10. That's more like it. Well, then he read the fine print down a little bit. For knowing where to tinker. $9,990. Total due, $10,000. And Henry paid the bill. The Holy Spirit knows where to tinker. See, God is spirit. It says in 1 John, He has no skin. Jesus is God with skin. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. 1 John 14. And the Holy Spirit is God in our skin. He is God in us. What is He saying to you and to me today about this anorexia of prayer? He's tinkering today. And God's people say, Amen.